0: This week on P.A. Books, Tim McGrath, author of James Monroe, A Life.
1: Our guest today is Tim McGrath. He is the author of this book, James Monroe, A Life. Tim McGrath, of of all the founders you could have picked to write a biography of, why James Monroe?
0: Well, it's a good start, Brian, and thanks again for having us back on uh, Pennsylvania Books. It's great to see you again. And my thanks to uh, Phil Beckman and uh, Corey Clark for putting this together. Um, it was a combination of happenstance and uh, and actually uh, a, a desire to do uh, to do it. Um, after we did give me a fast ship about the Continental Navy, our uh, editor, a young guy who's I think a year older than my son, said, "Let's think big. Let's look at." Uh, uh, let's try a president. So we he initially brought up Harry Truman after I'd brought up George Marshall as a name, and he just finished d- uh, editing a book on Marshall. And uh, uh, when he brought up Truman, I said, really, after David McCullough? But he said, give it some thought, and I did, and I thought of an approach to take. And the very next day, he said, there's apparently a very smart professor uh, from Missouri and she's going to be doing a book on Truman. So he said pick another president and I immediately said James Monroe. And when Brent asked why I said well when I was seven years old he was my favorite president. Uh, I had just gone to Valley Forge uh, and the uh, park ranger that was giving us uh, the tour and taking us along the cabins and by the uh, chapel in Washington's headquarters Uh, mentioned that uh, James Monroe was also at Valley Forge as an officer and had been seriously wounded at the Battle of Trenton. So I immediately thought, okay, he's and I read a couple of books on him. But uh, as always when these things happen, uh, Brian, it turned out once I got into the uh, research that I didn't know enough about James Monroe to hurt me. Mm -hmm. I had a history major's knowledge, but my goodness, he's everywhere in the first 50 years of our country's history. And it uh, and he, he made for a really wonderful story. Why isn't he better known? I think it's a combination of being the last of the Virginia dynasty and also his personality. He is not a, uh, uh, he's not a very outgoing person. He's charming. He's very courteous. Uh, he's very ambitious, but uh, he did not own a room the way Washington did by his presence, uh, the way Jefferson did by his own magnetism, or Madison did by his smarts. And maybe the fact that if Madison rarely was not the brightest guy in the room, but I'll bet most of the time he was the smallest. Uh, and Monroe was a little more diffident. Uh, I would compare him both in personality and in experience probably to George H.W. Bush in that uh, he went wherever he was asked to go. He did whatever he was asked to do, and he didn't brag about it. Uh, He's never one to toot his own own horn, and I think that has uh, contributed uh, quite a bit to his uh, being uh, uh, not as well known or uh, he's certainly well regarded among historians. Uh, He's ranked uh, in those presidential rankings that range from professors to uh, the general public on on C-SPAN. He's ranked anywhere from 7th to 18th, and he's also very uh, low-ranked in terms of uh, presidential narcissism. Uh, He's he's, he's not a braggart, and he's certainly not someone that uh, makes sure everybody knows what he's done. Was he born to money? He wasn't born to money, but he wasn't <clears throat> born, excuse me, in any kind of degree of uh, of poverty. His father, Spence Monroe, uh, had a more of a farm than a plantation in Westmoreland County. Uh, among uh, uh, property he owned uh, include uh, included uh, at least one, and probably it looks like you know several enslaved persons. Uh, he was. Uh, uh, a carpenter. Uh, so he was both an artisan and a, uh, and a farmer. And Monroe was uh, the first son, the second child born into the family. And uh, uh, his parents made sure he got a very good education. As a boy he went to a very exclusive school that he could walk to where it turned out one of his best friends uh, was a boarding student named John Marshall and they struck up their friendship well before the, the revolution uh, took place. In fact, they served in the same Virginia regiment. Uh But he was uh, well provided for. Sadly, his uh, parents both died when he was young, his mother probably when he was about 14, his father when he was just uh, starting to his college uh, uh, years at William & Mary. Uh, But his mother's brother, Joseph Jones, was a very well-regarded Virginia lawyer, a member of the House of Burgesses, and a good friend of Washington's. And Joseph saw James's potential and took him under his wing and basically saw to it that he was able to stay at William & Mary until uh, Monroe left, as many of his fellow students did, to uh, volunteer to fight in the American Revolution.
1: Why did James Monroe join the Rebellion?
0: Uh, Patriotism. Um, It's very interesting that he he arrives at William and Mary right before the revolution starts. And uh, Williamsburg, the way he describes it in his autobiography, uh, must have seemed like a London or New York City to him. Uh, You know, the, the rows and rows of streets with red brick, the magnificent Governor's Palace, the College of William and Mary and the cupola, and how uh, well that was uh, designed, and uh, it's also the 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 colony's capital. This is where the House of Burgesses are. This is where the arguments are beginning to take place about whether or not do we just protest or do we actually take up arms and and fight the king and Parliament for uh, for our own liberty. And he becomes very involved in that. Uh, he takes. Uh, uh, he joins uh, a couple of, whether you want to call them crowds or mobs, uh, that uh, go to the governor's palace. In fact, in one, they break in to get uh, what weapons are there after uh, Lord Dunmore has vacated the premises. And uh, it's obvious that this is something he's going to, you know, want to do. And he's immediately recognized that he has some talent there because he's made a lieutenant at the age of 18 in the uh, 3rd Virginia Regiment.
1: So how did this teenager go from being just an, uh, just another teenage volunteer to, to being kind of in the inner circle of, uh, of the, the rebellion of the Continental Army?
0: I think on his own merits, uh, Brian, that's a good question. Uh, he certainly uh, had some connections with his uncle, but it was the other officers, uh, General Mercer uh, for one, that saw the talents in him, uh, you know, to make a 18-year-old a lieutenant uh, means that you've got something there besides uh, his physical presence. He's over six feet, so that certainly doesn't hurt. But he really, uh, uh, this is something he deeply believes in, and uh, the proof is in the pudding in the fact that uh, in, uh, on Christmas Day of 1776, when Washington's down to maybe 2,400 soldiers left in his army that was in the thousands just a few months before. Uh, he volunteers along with a Washington cousin, William, who's a captain. Uh, both of these young men volunteer to cross the Delaware hours before Washington's forces do, leading uh, uh, 40 men and basically the reconnaissance of getting to Trenton and, and checking out what's, uh, where to go and where to be.
1: Uh, who was Lord Sterling and how did he get to be the aide to Lord Sterling and why was somebody named Lord Sterling in in the Continental Army
0: well Lord Sterling uh, takes his name from the fact that he's descended from Scottish royalty but uh, he's a a resident of of Northern Jersey very involved in New York politics and uh, he is uh, one of Washington's most trusted generals uh, Washington likes him because he will go where he's asked to go and he will commit to the battle. He's also well known uh, for his drinking talents. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, Monroe uh, gets an opportunity to serve as an aide to him, which is a, a step up. Uh, he's promoted the captain at Trenton after uh, he survives his wound. and uh, But there's really n- not a lot of chance for a Virginian, especially a young Virginia officer, to advance. There's more than enough of them, and Washington is very aware that uh, everyone's looking at Virginia officers of saying, oh, of course they're picking, you know, he's from Virginia. So Monroe didn't stand much of a chance. So becoming an aide to Lord Sterling is a a step up for him. And it's also a step up for him in his growth. He is uh, at uh, Birmingham Hill uh, at the Battle of Brandywine uh, along with uh, Sterling and uh, the Marquis de Lafayette who's wounded there uh, back in September 11th of 77. And at Valley Forge, uh, he is uh, part of Sterling's uh, headquarters, which is a handsome house. It is close to the public. They let us come in, but there's been so much termite damage but it's a it's a remarkable place and the fact that the family who lived there was staying and now Sterling comes in and also with his aides but then Sterling's family is a couple of daughters and his wife move in uh, it must have uh, looked like a, uh, uh, a very confined dormitory <laughs> uh, but uh, Monroe picks up uh, how to uh behave as a soldier, the, what, what's expected as an officer. Um, he also is, uh, gets to meet a young man named De Ponso, a Frenchman, who's come over from Europe with uh, Baron von Steuben. And De Ponso takes uh, a, a shine to Monroe and really helps bring him out of his shell, Brian. He, they enjoy the same books, the classics. They talk about the, uh, their likes and dislikes. And uh, De Ponso is a very slight almost frail young man that uh, Von Steuben uh, has brought along. And they strike up a lifelong friendship. Uh, He also makes friends with Washington's aides, with John Lawrence, uh, with Alexander Hamilton. Uh, Lawrence at one point uh, who so desperately believes that when the Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal, it's not just white men or white landowners. And he's very anxious to try to set up a regiment of enslaved African-Americans with the promise if they will join the army that they will be freed and he's looking for officers to, to, to uh, help him with this and Monroe volunteers in fact Hamilton writes a letter to Lawrence while he's in South Carolina saying our friend Monroe is equally interested in taking part in what he calls your scheme um, The South Carolina Assembly uh, won't hear of the idea. You know, arming enslaved black men does not sound like a good idea to plantation owners. And uh, that comes to naught. Hamilton also writes a letter of recommendation for Monroe, as Washington does, you know, talking about what a decent young fellow he is. Uh, So they are off to a good start relationship-wise, which doesn't turn out that well at the end
1: you You uh, talked about the kind of uh, adulation that Monroe was getting, but you also say that um, that Aaron Burr said uh, as far as Monroe's work for Lord Sterling as an aide, you said Monroe's whole duty was to fill his lordship's tankard and hear with indications of admiration his lordship's long stories about himself
0: and that's probably true at least partially true. Uh, Burr befriends uh, Monroe during the war. In fact, they are con- often at uh, an estate after Monmouth, the uh, Battle of Monmouth in northern Jersey. Uh, the uh, woman's uh, husband uh, is a British officer, but she later becomes Burr's wife. And she becomes sort of an almost older sister confidant to Monroe as he's wending his way through, uh, uh, relationships with young ladies at this time uh, but Burr will is someone who's perfectly willing to say hey great job you're doing Bob or something along those lines but then he'll make comments behind someone's back about them that uh, isn't so complimentary.
1: You said that uh, Monroe was wounded at the Battle of Trenton it sounded pretty severe.
0: It was. In fact, uh, but for a happenstance event right before the battle, Monroe would probably never be known. He probably would have died on the battlefield. Uh, As he is leading uh, the troops with uh, Captain Washington uh, to reconnoiter and and advance on Trenton, they pass a, a small farmhouse, and the dogs wake up. And it is, as we all know from history and legend, this is not an easy night to travel. It has been snowing fiercely. It's been a, a classic nor'easter. Uh, when the when the snow stops, it's only because maybe the temperature got a little bit higher. And now it's starting to pour rain. Uh, but the dogs awaken by Monroe's soldiers going by, and the owner of the house comes out furious. He's convinced that it's the Hessians again coming to steal his chickens, and starts cussing them out. And when he find when he realizes that these are American soldiers, he immediately says, come inside, get something to to eat and get warm. And Monroe says, we just can't do that. We're heading into Trenton. And he goes back into his house. He he and his wife bring some refreshments uh, for them to take on the run or hurry. But he comes out with his doctor's bag. His name is John Riker. And he said, I'm coming with you. I'm a doctor, and I might be able to help some poor fellow. And as it turns out, the poor fellow that he helps is James Monroe. Uh, They are charging down King Street to seize and take two Hessian guns when Captain Washington is struck by uh, musket fire in both his hands. And once he's down and being taken away, Monroe picks up the leadership and continues to charge down the street. When he's hit by a musket ball that comes up in towards his shoulder and clavicle, it severs an artery. And had Dr. Riker not been there, he probably would have died. You know, Riker immediately puts a clamp on it and gets him carried off the field. And uh, uh, Monroe's given a battlefield promotion by Washington for his bravery. They move him up to captain.
1: He was able to bounce back from that and be at the Battles of Brandywine and Germantown and spend time at Valley Forge?
0: Yes. He, he, he was a bit of a long uh, recuperation. Um, he spent some time, uh, not too long in Trenton, they brought him back immediately across to uh, to Pennsylvania and a family there take care of him. But what's funny is that there's a young lady who nurses him while he's in Trenton and then uh, over and he meets her many years later when he's uh, doing his tour of the northeast once elected president. She is the widow of the president of Dartmouth College and uh, They meet each other, immediately recognize each other, and the crowd that's in the room and the newspapers say that uh, it's probably the most touching reunion any of us will ever see, and the conversation is something that we'll never forget. Unfortunately, nobody wrote down what they said, but uh, uh, Monroe has a bit of a long recuperation, and before Brandywine, before Washington decides to move to defend Philadelphia, he's actually uh, sent Monroe to Virginia to try to recruit his own company, and he fails miserably. The, the, uh, the revolution is no longer looked at as a chance for you know, fame and glory. Uh, the, the defeats and the cost of the war have really come home, which is obviously one of the reasons why John Lawrence was looking to you know, enlist a black regiment.
1: Uh, you, you mentioned this uh, George Washington and his relationship. When did Monroe first have direct contact with George Washington, and what did he think of him?
0: He probably saw Washington frequently uh, while in uh, Williamsburg. Uh, it's not known for sure if he met him officially or, uh, or whatever in that time. But what is interesting is in Washington's retreat from New Jersey, and troops are deserting by the dozens to the hundreds on a daily basis and there's one day where Monroe as a lieutenant is given the assignment of basically counting the troops and he does his counting and finds they're down to around 2400 and Washington is not leading the retreat. Washington is is in the rear guard of the retreat and he describes very eloquently uh, his first seeing Washington on horseback and Washington as a commander. And uh, it's such a glowing passage, I wish I could recite it for you, but he really does feel, in the words that Lafayette said about him at Monmouth, that I I can't think of any man who had more of a commanding presence or, or a more inspirational force.
1: Well, we could go a lot of different directions with this conversation, but I do want to go down a list of names of people who show up in your book and just talk a little bit about James Monroe's relationship with them and whether they were sure. friends and foes. Uh, first of all, well, George Washington, subsequent to the war.
0: Washington has been his hero, as with many. And, uh, uh, but as you know, Monroe begins his political career, thanks to no doubt to studying law and under the influence of Thomas Jefferson— Uh, he's a young assemblyman before he's 25 he's a congressman at 25 and uh... but he has uh... he's very much the jeffersonian politician so by the time washington has ascended to the presidency uh... monroe's in the opposite camp you know while washington never declared either federalist or republican he had more federalist tendencies uh... Washington still has regard for him. Uh, there's an interesting time where Washington actually runs for Congress against his friend James Madison. And uh, it, while he wants to win, he's kind of torn because Madison created this constitution that they're now running, running uh, for office under. And Washington sends Monroe a very nice note about, you know, you, good job. Uh, while I think the best man won, you have a future. Uh, By 1793, though, uh, Monroe's partisanship has really taken full hold. And uh, Washington's minister to France, uh, Gouverneur Morris, has been anything but a a good minister to France. Uh, He does not like the French. The revolution has him justifiably scared to death. And uh, he, he's not happy at all. Uh, Washington's in the process of sending John Jay uh, from the Supreme Court to England to negotiate what becomes the Jay Treaty. And he thinks that he needs more of a uh, minister with French ten- sympathies than, than Governor Morris. Monroe is not his first pick. He's the third. Among the people who turned him down was Madison. Among the people who wanted the job was Aaron Burr, who did not get it. Uh, but he sends Monroe over with strict orders to, you're to, you know, s- show how much we support the, f- uh, the the new government in France and the Republic, but don't go too far. And uh, uh, over the course of the next three years, three, four years, uh, the Jay Treaty, of course, alienates the French, and Monroe has been left completely in the dark about it. Now, just, just uh, for,
1: for clear... So we understand what's going on. What was the Jay Treaty about that caused such a rift?
0: The Jay Treaty was uh, 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 an an attempt by Washington to negotiate uh, a a list of things, but primarily, you know, some way of developing a stronger trade, and in some respects of making sure that the British live up to the Treaty of Paris, especially regarding frontier forts and American American rights on the frontier. it's thought of as a very conciliatory treaty to Great Britain. Uh, even Washington's burned in effigy when it, when it uh, arrives back in America and John Jay says that he could travel from one end of the country to the other just by following the effigies of him that are being burned. Um, Washington, uh, Monroe is by then a real Francophile. He, he pretty much was before but he also resents the fact that Washington left him in the dark and when he's reached out to Jay to get information about the treaty, the French politicians in the directory, they want to know uh, Danton Robespierre you know uh, Robespierre died actually right before uh, uh, Monroe got to Paris, he, he he had just arrived but they have been constantly seeing what's the American policies going to be like with Great Britain and uh, so Monroe takes out his resentment by sending notes about what's really going on to his friends in America, fellow Republicans, and uh, ironically Washington gets wind of that. Uh, He is, Monroe is recalled and thought of as the great disgraced minister, as John Adams, uh, uh, then president, describes him. And Washington is pretty much done with, with Monroe. He also takes offense to the fact that when Monroe comes from Philadelphia back down to Virginia he doesn't pay a courtesy call at Mount Vernon and Washington very well remembers when Monroe did that once before when his new bride was extremely pregnant and what a gracious host Washington always was but particularly to Elizabeth Monroe and uh, the proof of, of the deterioration of their relationship Comes in 1799 when Monroe was elected governor of Virginia, and uh, this is in December of 99. And a couple days, a day before Washington dies, he's riding in the uh, around his grounds as he always did, and comes in soaked to the skin, and it's cold, and he asks his amanuensis to buy a sleer to read him the newspapers. Now, when he reads about Monroe being elected, he gets a bit apoplectic to the point where Lear says, why don't you go to bed? And Washington pretty much doesn't get out of bed. He passes away the next day. At the same time, Monroe is writing to Jefferson, suggesting that now that he's been elected governor, he would like to publish, uh, you know, some of the nice things Washington said about him in the Richmond newspaper. And along with a note of his own and hoping to have some kind of rapprochement with this man who was, you know, one of his heroes and it never comes to be. You know, by the time Washington has died, these two gentlemen that crossed the Delaware uh, to, to fight for their liberty uh, have encountered a, 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 a river that they just couldn't possibly cross together.
1: You also say that uh, Monroe published a book called Monroe's view on the conduct of the executive and that book was found in George Washington's library with a couple of snarky comments that Washington made uh, in the columns in the margins of the book.
0: Oh Brian that's completely untrue there's not a couple of snarky comments there's a host of snarky comments (laughs) and apparently Washington was one of those men who your book is supposed to be in pristine order if you need to make notes write them on a piece of paper, <laughs> uh, but Mon- uh, Washington's copy of this book, which has this long title, let's just say, A View of the Executive from Abroad, uh, and it is basically a, a, a consistent put-down of Washington's policies and his actions with, uh, with Monroe, and some of the asides Washington uh, has in there, they're all of uh, very tactful language as we look at it today, but there are a lot of what we would call "WTF" moments <laughs> in these comments. Uh, at, uh, at one point, he s- says, "I was selected by the president to uh, to take this task." In Washington's comments, or yes, after several people, did, you know, did not aggr- did not accept it. And uh, at one point, when he's talking about, I didn't see the Declaration of Independence as something that would be transferred, you know completely into the relationship with France, and Washington has none are so blind as who will not see. It it's, it's, it's definitely shows Washington and Monroe, both were men who wanted to hold their temper as best as they could, and both weren't very successful at it, maybe Washington more so. Uh, Monroe could be pretty thin-skinned, but uh, this is certainly an example of how far the breach had come by 1797.
1: Now we could spend the rest of our time here just talking about Monroe's relationship with George Washington, but I have to ask about James Monroe's relationship with Alexander Hamilton.
0: Yep, that's a good segue. Uh, Hamilton is, is, we all know, uh, became the arch-federalist of Federalists and is this very brilliant man. And uh, certainly uh, Lynn manuel Miranda's uh, uh, opera uh, about him uh, proves that point. Uh, By the 1790s, Monroe and Hamilton are in completely opposite camps. Monroe, Bryan, is such a partisan politician that if he was alive today, depending on the issue, because things have obviously changed in a couple hundred years, he would be on Fox News or MSNBC every darn night. Uh, and making sure his side, the Jeffersonian side, gets heard. He was more of a Jeffersonian than Jefferson. Uh, but uh, at one point, right before he goes to France, uh, Monroe is one of the uh, uh, congressmen who visit Hamilton in the late 1792 in Philadelphia and says, you know, we're investigating you for misprision of funds as the Secretary of the Treasury. And Hamilton says, okay, fine, but you need to know, I am not taking any federal funds. I am, sp- I'm not speculating with their money, I'm not, but my family's back in New York, why don't you come to my house tonight, we'll talk about it. So the, the three other men, uh, Congressman Muhlenberg and uh, Congressman Venerable from Virginia, uh, come, Monroe, or Jefferson, or Hamilton, there's too many of these guys, <laughs> Hamilton, uh, has a fellow of his who's in the Treasury, Mr. Walcott, with him as well. And Hamilton confesses to them that, you know, he is spending money somewhat illegally uh, because he's being blackmailed and he is paying money to uh, this fellow Reynolds whose wife, Maria, Hamilton's having an affair with. All three of the men, particularly Monroe, say that's nobody else's business. And Hamilton thanks them for that and they said, well, we'll make our report that you're clean as far as an investigation concerns, but we're not going to get into the other stuff. And then Monroe sends his report to Jefferson in Virginia. Uh, the, the official report goes to a fellow named uh, Beckley, who is the uh, uh, Congress's secretary. And this fella hates Alexander Hamilton. Uh, and he makes sure that word gets out that Hamilton's having this affair. Meanwhile, Monroe is g- is going to France. When Monroe returns here to Philadelphia in the uh, end of summer of 1797, uh, he's immediately confronted by Monroe by letter, because Monroe believes that it is uh, Hamilton believes that Monroe is the culprit here. Was he? And uh, now. Uh, hes He said he wasn't, and in fact a couple of uh Hamilton's men who turn out to be seconds for a possible duel uh get back to Hamilton and say Monroe did not do this in fact, one of them flat out says it's it's got to be beckley um, when Monroe with his family go up to visit uh elizabeth's family in uh in New York, they all live down near wall street uh Hamilton immediately requests a meeting with Monroe there and says you may bring friends if you wish and Monroe knows what that means. A duel. the duel and they have this conversation in the uh, Courtright living room. Uh, Monroe keeps insisting look I sent a report to Virginia Congress took the report to uh, Beckley I did not do this. Finally Hamilton says you're nothing but a scoundrel at which point the six foot one monroe stands up over the smaller five foot seven or so hamilton and, and and basically says choose your weapons you know pistol swords or fists and they begin the long code duo of how to set up to fight a duel uh... whether they're going to have the duel in new york on an island in the east river or down in the delaware or in pennsylvania or in new jersey and as the uh... combatant potential combatants' uh, seconds argue back and forth. Monroe's second basically says to Monroe, and it's interesting, the documents at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, if anybody wants to look at the real thing, but he basically says, you know, you and Alex are crack shots, you're officers, you're going to kill each other. If, if Alex will say no harm, no foul, will you back off of this? And uh, Monroe says, yes, that, that's fine. So Monroe's second works very hard to get this uh, uh, off the books. And he does, he succeeds. And of course Monroe second is Aaron Burr. Uh, you know, the sort of things in history you can't make up. And while they still pawed each other over the given months, they basically, uh, you know, let this thing pass.
1: Now, uh, we're not gonna go chronologically here, but I have to ask about a, a line you have in here in 1793, Philadelphia was swept with a yellow fever epidemic that had been catastrophic. Dozens died each day, and by the summer's end, the city felt empty and abandoned. Partisanship partisanship had grown so fierce, even treatments for the disease became politicized. There were now Republican and Federalist cures. Sound familiar?
0: Oh, you know, that could never happen again. We're so much (laughs) uh, smarter than that now. it, it, it is absolutely the case. And uh, uh, one of the things that uh, struck me about it is th- th- that it did split into parties. Uh, Benjamin Rush, uh, the best known of the colonial physicians and the founding fathers, uh, believed that the, and he was right, the source of the yellow fever came from the Caribbean, the West Indies. But he blamed it on coffee that had gone bad and been left to rot on the docks and not the sailors who brought it back with them. Uh, he also believed in bleeding as the last hope. Um, and there were newspaper reports that said that when you passed Dr. Rush's backyard, you couldn't help but be overwhelmed by the sickeningly sweet stench of the soaked yard and by uh, the, uh, the, f- the flies that were everywhere. Um, the Federalist cure came from a friend of Hamilton's from the West Indies, a doctor, who was there during the epidemic and he was, no, you get quinine and you lace it with cinnamon or bark or or something, uh, uh, rum, but quinine and keeping out in the open, not staying inside Go somewhere where there 's wind and Grace Ferry actually becomes sort of a retreat for them and among one of the uh, founding fathers that uh, that does this is John Adams Washington has gone back to uh, Virginia and monroe is is out of town uh, he 's in France, but uh, it has be- it became so political that this was well who you supported was how you got taken care of by your yellow fever and of course, the real heroes were the uh African-American Philadelphians uh, uh, under Stephen Smith and and others that uh, basically were the ones who took care of so many of white Philadelphians because they all believed, as Rush did, that uh, African-Americans just weren't going to get this disease.
1: Now we've talked a bit about Thomas Jefferson and that Monroe was a Jeffersonian, but what what did that mean to be a Jeffersonian and why was Monroe so fond of Thomas Jefferson?
0: Monroe was told by his Uncle Joseph Jones in the late 1779 his military career was pretty much over. Uh, There was no way for him to advance and uh, uh, he looked to join the Virginia militia uh, and come back and he thought about studying law and uh, his choice was between George Wythe and Thomas Jefferson and Joseph Jones said well wife has been the go-to guy for generations but the person you ought to seek out and who's really going places if you're looking to get into public service is Thomas Jefferson so he has a letter of introduction from Washington uh, recommendation and meets with Jefferson who immediately takes him into his class and as most people know you, you, you did not learn the law by going to school but by clerking under someone that uh, was a licensed lawyer. Well, who better to learn, um, you know, law from than Thomas Jefferson? So they become very close. Uh, Jefferson becomes uh, Monroe's lifetime mentor, more than uh, Washington, and uh, really helps him, his career, move forward and takes a genuine interest in Monroe and his family. Uh, they have a a remarkable relationship and they have its ins and outs when years later when Monroe is actually an ambassador to Great Britain and is trying hard to end the impressment of sailors and comes up with a pretty close deal. Jefferson is president and Madison is Monroe's boss, Secretary of State, both say we're not doing this and Monroe takes offense to it but he immediately upon returning home uh, is swept under Jefferson's charm but it's about three, four years before he'll uh, uh, get back together with Madison.
1: Why did he decide to get into politics? And, uh, and how did he go from, again, being the, the, the guy he was to President of the United States?
0: It's a slow but sure growth period over, over the years, Brian. Um, I think he followed Jefferson and Washington's example and, and looked to public service, and his own uncle, Joseph Jones, was a member of the House of Burgesses was a congressman uh... in virginia um, actually someone who takes a, him under his wing early on is patrick henry uh... monroe's already established congressman but is just married and he's kind of put out that he's not part of the virginia delegation to come to the uh... convention in philadelphia to draft the new constitution madison who's by now a friend of his just says look you just got married you don't have any money we're not getting paid so." take it as, you know, where we can go. But when the Constitution is done, as you know, there's no Bill of Rights in it. So when it comes down to Virginia for a Virginia convention to ratify it, the anti-federalists are led by Patrick Henry. And Monroe believes that the Constitution shouldn't be approved without a Bill of Rights. So Henry wisely takes uh, Monroe and says, young war hero, good-looking guy, let him be the front man. And he does make several arguments during the convention about uh, the, uh, what's in these, this uh, proposed constitution. most interesting of which is when he gets into the uh, uh, Article Two, of the presidency and he discusses impeachment and he says the way this is worded, you know, the president can be uh, tried for high crimes and misdemeanors. But who's going to judge him? He really doesn't have any peers. And how is that going to work? Furthermore, what is to keep a foreign government, by which he means Great Britain, Spain, and France, and not really Russia, but uh, to be able to keep, as he puts it, by their guile and intrigue, uh, from holding sway over the President of the United States or his advisors? And this is. 200 years before, you know, Vladimir Putin and Paul McCartney right back in the USSR. I mean, it's, it's, it's something he's raising uh, strong concerns about in 1787.
1: Um, I want to ask you about, um, he, he was a slave owner, right? Yes, sir. You say in here uh, Monroe sought, for his whole life, Monroe sought a solution to slavery that was morally, politically, and financially agreeable to him, he never found it. Given his point of view, he never could have. What was his point of view?
0: His point of view was, was obviously mixed with uh, uh, his, his moral scruples and his financial needs. Um, Sarah Bon Harper is the executive director of uh, Monroe's estate in Charlottesville. And she sums up his approach to slavery in one sentence in terms of getting past his moral wranglings over it, that when he needed money, he, uh, he bought enslaved persons. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, he sold enslaved persons, and when he uh, had money, he bought them. Uh, he is the only one of the founding fathers who, as governor of Virginia, uh, had to execute uh, enslaved men for insurrection. Uh, Gabriel's Rebellion is not as well known as Nat Turner's. It took place 30 uh, years, odd years later, but Gabriel was a six foot four blacksmith in Richmond whose owner uh, would let him work in his own smithy in Richmond. He was very uh, well regarded for his talents and he had been taught to read at the same time that uh, the plantation owner's son his uh, same age, uh, both learned from the uh, the owner's wife, uh, so he had a, a leg up in terms of knowledge. Uh, and now he's in the middle of the the capital city of the biggest state in the in the union, and he's paying attention. Uh, he's getting information what he can, but he has decided that the best thing for uh, him to do is to organize a revolt. They will kidnap the governor, who is Monroe, and they will release him if he uh, gives them citizenship. Uh, they plan to uh, uh, kill, uh, you know, anyone that, that opposes them. H- he plans certainly to kill his owner, who is by now this, the owner's son he grew up with. Uh, but they're not going to, uh, you know, just go on a merchant, uh, ra- a rampant murderous terror. In fact, Gabriel actually believes that once he's given his citizenship, they can stay in Virginia. He uh, His, his uh, password is death and liberty, you know, a kind of a play on Patrick Henry's liberty or death, and uh, uh, making it death or liberty. And then he also uh, has uh, hundreds of slaves uh, ready to move at the desired time. Uh, That occurs in August of of 1800. And that night a ferocious uh, storm comes. It it tears apart bridges. And uh, so the revolt does not take place. Two of the enslaved men that are part of it actually go to their owner and confess that this was to take place. Monroe is immediately made aware of it and uh, the manhunt for the ringleaders begins and uh, uh, they f- the Gabriel isn't caught for about three weeks and when he is put in prison in the R- Richmond jail he says he'll only speak to Governor Monroe. Monroe goes to see him and uh, by that time Gabriel does not speak to him. Uh, Monroe is also emotionally torn because his only son, who's a little over a year old, is dying probably of croup. And uh, so he's dealing with that issue at home while he's beset with this issue. And after you know over a dozen uh, insurrectionists, enslaved men have been hanged, he writes a letter to his mentor Jefferson. And in it he uh, pours out his Conscience and his, his concerns and his just uh, hatred of what he's doing, uh, sums it up by saying, Where to stay the hand of the executioner? And Jefferson writes back immediately. He's in his campaign for the presidency against John Adams. And he begins the letter by saying, Where to stay the hand of the executioner is the topic, the subject, the issue. Uh, and a very subtle way says, And it, we ought to stay the hand soon because uh, as we hang more enslaved men, it's not going to look very good in New England. Um, This is an aside, Brian, but uh, I came out of this convinced that uh, Thomas Jefferson is the Don Corleone of American history. I don't mean that he has people killed or did illegal things, but in terms of a leadership style, he could get people to do anything, and if he didn't want a paper trail back to him, so be it. But he urges Monroe to take a calmer hand. And this has Monroe embarking on solutions to the issue of slavery. Uh, He writes about, uh, especially brings it up after the Louisiana Purchase, he has a hand in. Um, Could we find land in the Western frontier where rebellious slaves could be sent as opposed to executing them? Later on uh, in the uh, 18, uh, during his presidency, he's very involved with the American Colonization Society with the idea of sending freed enslaved persons and and freed uh, uh, blacks uh, from the north back to Africa and buying Liberia, which is named in Monroe's honor the capital, Monrovia. Uh, which, when we look at it from 200 years later, is uh, even logistically how could you even pull something like this off? There were not enough ships in the world to take a couple of million American citizens, be they uh, enslaved or otherwise, and send them, you know, back across the Atlantic.
1: Now you, you mentioned Thomas Jefferson as kind of being the Don Corleone. Did, did Thomas Jefferson get? James Monroe to do a lot of his dirty work when he was uh, arguing with George Washington?
0: No, I think Monroe didn't mind. Uh, he really, uh, uh, and, and if he was asked to, Monroe, Jefferson doesn't ask so many times so much as suggest. When he needs someone to do something, he can be extremely great at flattery. When he wants Monroe to go to, back to France in 1803, and close the deal on the uh, Louisiana Purchase, uh, the principal sentence in that entreaty is no other man can be found. You know, only you can do this. You've been to France, you know the players, you speak the language well, you can close this deal. And Monroe takes some initiative on adding more money to it when it looks like we're not just going to get New Orleans, we're going to get all of uh, the Louisiana territory from Napoleon. Uh, but Jefferson can, you know, and it's not just with Monroe, there are other people that he uh, uh, can enlist and, and ask to do things and, and you just want to please him. I, I, he must have been a, a, a remarkable man, not just for his, his his brilliance and and this very quiet charisma that he carried around with him, but also his, his leadership style, you know, like he, he really has no problem in, throughout his career, most of the time, in getting individuals to, uh, to take on a mission that he wants done.
1: What kind of shape was the country in when Monroe was elected president?
0: Good question. Uh, it's coming out right after the War of 1812, during which time Monroe served as both Secretary of State and for a while Secretary of War after Washington was burned. Monroe spent a good bit of the war Concerned that that was going to happen, and uh, the Secretary of War, a general named John Armstrong, kept poo-pooing it. That's they're not going to come here, and obviously they did. Uh, so there's uh, the the economies in difficult shape coming back from the war, uh, but you know the war is over, and you can sense in 1816 uh, other people are writing about it, newspapers are writing about it that. You know, we've survived, you know, it's been a year since the war ended. We've survived the, uh, uh, the ramifications of it. We're starting to move. The, the frontier is starting to be uh, crowded with settlers. Um, business is getting better. Uh, we're in for an interesting time. And Monroe takes that moment and makes the most of it. Like Washington, he's very image conscious and uh when he embarks on these tours uh there are people saying you really shouldn't do this washington had made a couple of smaller ones and a former secretary of his a philadelphia nicholas biddle who goes on to his own distinguished career in public service says to monroe you know most of the country thinks the president is like the chief clerk of congress and we know it's not that so monroe takes uh three tours a very long one in 1817 through the uh north and northeast, uh, a, a somewhat shorter one the following year and then another extended tour through the south and southwest in 1819. He wears a buff uh, waistcoat and breeches uh, and a navy blue coat, uh, which is as close to a Continental Army uniform as he can get. He carries or wears a hat called a chapeau bra, which looks very much like the uh... headgear from the revolution that he can neatly fold and uh... and and he thinks these tours are going to be quiet and he realizes from the get-go that they uh, this is like this is like the stones and the beatles coming to town together uh... he's you know fested everywhere he goes newspapers are writing about the, the immense impact that he is having on the townsfolk and if, if they have seen him or his silhouette against the sun in, in, in this outfit, standing erect as he always did. You know, how many memories did he bring back to people, not just of Washington, but, hey, that's what my dad must have looked like when he was fighting the British, or that was what my grandfather or my brother, they, they, you know, they, he brings those memories back and he's using them for political capital. It's remarkable, and when even when he goes to the last hotbed of federalism in Boston, it's a Federalist paper, The Sentinel, who calls this this era the era of good feelings.
1: Was it really an era of good feelings?
0: No, but for a little while it was, and it's it's almost like uh, what's the line at the end of John Ford's uh, Man Who Shot Liberty Valance? When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. <laughs> uh, his whole two-term uh, presidency is is thought of that way, but it really only lasts. Uh, ironically, until 1819, when the Panic of 1819 strikes, which is, is uh, for that population in that time, certainly the equal of the Great Depression in the
1: 1930s. Was well, also the uh, issue of Missouri statehood and spreading slavery into the into the territories that came up.
0: Yeah, that's a, another good question. The Missouri Compromise in 1820. Um, Maine has been a part of Massachusetts territory and now it's becoming its own state just at the same time that Missouri is applying for statehood. So you have a classic case of a northern new state and a southern state. And uh, the, there's quite a debate in Congress about we should have no more enslaved states and the southerners are equally adamant that yes, we can. Uh, so the. Real battle takes place in the Senate and the House. Uh, the presidency is is certainly not what we know of it now, or even 100 years, 150 years ago. Um, but Monroe is not going to take a back seat to this. But he knows that he can't be involved in it. So the back doors to the White House become where he can be involved in talking and trying to cajole both sides or the southerners back and try to say to the you know northern can you at least accept this much uh, it's one of the few times he does involve his cabinet and his cabinet is every bit the uh, uh, as strong as, as Washington's first cabinet was um, it's one of the few times he does not elicit the opinions of John Quincy Adams his Secretary of State uh, their relationship is only equaled I think in history to uh, Truman and Marshall and George H.W. Bush and Jim Baker, who had a really terrific uh, relationship with foreign, and foreign policy decision making. Um, but he's doing things in the back door. It's almost like Lyndon Johnson. You know, let's, what do I need to do to get you guys to work this out? Because he realizes that the chances are rather good that if this doesn't get solved, you know, the North and South might be going to war. So in a way, he helps kick that can down the road 40 years. And uh, it's Quincy Adams who makes two interesting comments, Brian. Well, uh, we,
1: we probably won't have time. We only have about a minute left. Okay. And I, I want to ask you, you started off this program saying when you were a kid, James Monroe was your favorite president. Now you've spent years and, and, and 600 pages writing about him. Is he still at the top of your list?
0: I think he's up there. I think it's a, the, the way he... Uh, uh, he tr- as this most partisan man came this close to ending partisan politics. And ironically, his overwhelming re-election upends that. You know, ev- everybody and their mother's running for president as soon as he's uh, inaugurated a second time. But he's up there in terms of his judgment. Uh, an observer of Madison, Jefferson, and Monroe at, uh, at Monticello one night uh, clearly says, you know, here's a man who's the the most learned in Jefferson. Here's a man who's the most brilliant in Madison. And here's the man with the most judgment of the three of them, and that's Monroe. And um, it's a shame we couldn't get into other more things with, uh, with, the, with this book, especially the Monroe Doctrine. Well, but if people, Monroe if people want to know
1: that, they're going to have to read the book because we're out of time. Good. We have been speaking with Tim McGrath. He is the author of this book, James Monroe, A Life. Thank you very much. Thank
0: you, Brian, very much. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.